Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the NASPA Student Leadership Podcast presented by the uh, Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. My name is John Mark Day. I am the Director of Leadership and Campus Life at Oklahoma State University and I am happy to be your host for the podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the fall edition of New Directions for Student Leadership which is entitled Centering Dialogue in Leadership Development. I'm thrilled to welcome the editors of that issue, Ratnish Nanda and Larry Roper. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Ratnish Nanda is principal and founder of Idea Leadership LLC. He is a co-founder of the University of Michigan's program on intergroup relations and co-developer of the college-based intergroup dialogue model. He was a professor of social work and founding director of the Intergroup Dialogue Education and Action Center at the University of Washington. He works with educational institutions and community organizations nationally and internationally to develop intergroup dialogue programs and social justice and trauma-informed social hearing, healing, community resiliency, and leadership development programs. He's published widely in social science, social work, and education journals, and co-authored several books on intergroup dialogue practice theory and research and our other guest larry roper is a professor of language culture and society and the coordinator of the social justice minor at oregon state university as well as the coordinator of the college student services administration program previously he served as vice provost for student affairs at oregon state from 1995 to 2014 he's written extensively on leadership multiculturalism and conflict revolution resolution. So thank you both and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a moment and get to know them a little bit more. Uh, Ranish, you start the entire issue of New Directions for Student Leadership with a poem that you have written, which is called From Within a Light Among. I think that's something that we're not used to seeing when we open an academic <laughs> journal. So I, I want to read the opening of this poem and talk about it. Uh, you say in this, we are the holders of courage and compassion, holding courage, forging forth for justice, holding compassion, building bridges over waters that separate. I think it's such a great way to start this journal. So tell me why do you include a poem and, and, and where did this come from for you? Yeah, thank you, uh, John, for that question. And uh, exactly, I think your sentiment uh, is so appropriate, I mean, so uh, relevant to why we did this because um, I think as we got deep into putting the issue together and talking to many authors and contributors, um, we realized that what we were uh, what we were doing in the issue was actually really uh, challenging some very traditional ways of thinking about leadership and also um, traditional ways of knowing and being and doing our work. And uh, so it reminded me of this poem. Actually, I had, been, I had written it a few years ago uh, in my work on dialogue with uh, young people, both in South Africa and also in the U.S. And so I shared that with uh, Larry. And uh, even Larry really liked the poem. And um, I was doing some other work with young people here in the U.S. Uh, and uh, without, without my prompting, one of the participants in, uh, in a retreat I had done for student leaders and changemakers, she wrote a poem about the retreat and her experience. 
And um, so when she shared it with me, then I shared that with Larry as well. And then I think through that, we just came up with this idea of, wow, what a powerful way to uh, bookend the journal with, mm. uh, with poems that are imaginative, that encourage creativity, and that also talk really deeply about um, what it takes to do this work that's going to, you know, really push the boundaries of, uh, of leadership, about change-making, about activism, uh, and also really honor the lived experiences of, um, you know, people who've been actually doing this work. So that was, uh, that's really where it came from. And, uh, you know, thank you to Larry. Uh, he said, no, we should definitely do this. So, um, so that, that gave me the courage to say, okay, <laughs> let's do that. Yeah, I, I think that's really great because, you know, as a, as a reader, you open it and it sort of immediately centers you in a different mindset, right? You, you, you enter this knowing, okay, we're going to be talking about something different here. Uh, and I think that does go a long way towards opening up this frame of reference as we were talking about dialogue. So it's a very, very cool addition to the journal. Uh, thank you, John. So, Larry, you have done a lot of work centered on, on dialogue. This is not new work for you. So how did you come to this, and how is this factored in uh, to your sort of life's research and work? Well, it, you know, it actually started, um, I think I started most deeply when I transitioned here to Oregon State University in 1995 to become Vice Provost for Student Affairs. Um, the organization had gone through just a number of years of really difficult challenges in terms of um, just sort of dramatic budget cuts and elimination of positions. And so people had seen the organization transform and had seen colleagues disappear. And um, essentially when I got here, I, my quick take was that the organization was experiencing a great deal of despair. And uh, so one of the things that I felt like I needed to do before engaging in any sort of organizational change was to learn about the organization. And so I just um, began to just convene conversations. And, um, and through the process of doing that, um, we just, I just decided that some shared reading would be really important. And so we started with actually Ernest Boyer's book on um, creating community. And um, then just as an organization focused on one question, and that was, what does the university most need from us right now? Hmm. And as we began to get into those conversations, it became very clear as we broke up into smaller groups was that people had, even though they were in despair, they had tremendous energy for a hopeful future. Hmm. And so we began to just design conversations intentionally to get people into conversation with each other with the idea was that conversations were going to be the vehicle through which we would create our future. And so as a result, dialogue became the primary vehicle for organizational planning, work, relationship um, development, um, and really sort of drove home for me this really central issue, uh, which I think is at the heart of dialogue, is that it's people who care talking about things that matter but what they need is a thoughtful, respectful design for the conversation. Um, and so we just found that that was the vehicle through which we were able to essentially resuscitate the organization and to instill a hope as well as um, a, a clear design for the future that we needed to deliver to our university. 
Yeah, I, I love asking ourselves the question, what does the university most need from us right now? And thinking about all of the great ways that that could open the door for us to be hopeful, to be planful and, and thoughtful about the work that we engage in. So I'm really excited that that kind of launched that door for you in creating these dialogues. So what I would like to find out now is, you know, as you as you transition, obviously dialogue has a big component uh, to leadership development, but but connect the dots for us a little bit. How did you all get interested specifically in leadership education and dialogue as they relate to each other? Um, I'm happy to start, Larry, if uh, that's okay. Oh, please do, Ramesh. Yeah. Um, I think for me, uh, um, uh, John Mark, there's a particular, uh, maybe just a little addition I would put here. Uh, and maybe this is part of the journey of my getting into thinking about dialogue and leadership education is because um, I'd been actually doing a lot of work around intergroup dialogue, which is essentially thinking about uh, dialogue about difference and across difference. So how do we bring, you know, people who have really different social backgrounds, experiences, uh, and, um, you know, live on sort of different sides of inequality in some ways of power and privilege. Uh, how do we bring people together to think through uh, societies in different ways and, uh, you know, could try to build alliances to bring them on greater social justice? And um, so a few years ago, Susan Kamai was, uh, intro invited me to be part of the National Leadership Symposium. Uh, and I asked her, you know, why, um, why me, basically? Uh, and she said what um, they'd been doing the multi- institutional leadership survey and one of the biggest findings uh, in their sort of research over so many years was that um, it's the socio-cultural conversations that students have that's the best strongest and most consistent predictor for student leaders forming a social change leadership identity mm. so so that got me really excited because you know I had um, I had not connected those dots and for, for the research to show that the sociocultural conversations, which they defined as dialogue about and across differences um, and which intergroup dialogue is an example of was, was the most consistent predictor across all different groups. So uh, whether you're talking about people of color, white people, men, women, uh, people coming from lots of different ethnicities across the board, that was the most important predictor. So for me, you know, uh, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work on intergroup dialogue itself and uh, learning about the impact of it, but have, we had not, uh, you know, gone beyond that to see uh, what is the impact uh, over the lifetime uh, of uh, students' careers at the colleges and universities and beyond. And then how do, they, uh, how do the work we're doing in intergroup dialogue actually translates to actual leadership skills? So their research was, uh, you know, really exciting extension of our work. And uh, then I started putting, uh, putting the pieces about intergroup dialogue, dialogue across difference and leadership development and change making together. So that was uh, really my entry point to bringing what were maybe seemingly disparate fields, uh, but bringing them together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see that such value in that. I think for so long in our institutions, when we talk about uh, making sure that our college campuses are reflective of our society, 
the assumption has been we just need to be creating a diverse environment and then our job is done. But the realization we have come to now is if students aren't talking to each other, aren't talking to students who are different from themselves, we're missing out on all of that learning and all of that development that we hope for for our students. Yeah. Great. Well, what I'd like to know from both of you now is, you know, getting to know you a little bit more, uh, and we'll start with you on this, Larry. What are you reading or watching or listening to that's sort of outside of the traditional leadership canon, providing you with some good insights into leadership right now? Okay, so I have my, I, I, I can just share with you what my summer reading list is. It, it's not um, <laughs> impressive as um, President Obama's, but... Um, <laughs> So there are actually four things that I read this summer um, that I read. One, one of them is actually something that I reread. Um, but the books that I read this summer was um, Soul of America uh, by John Meacham. Um, I read um, Playing Hurt, um, My Journey from Despair to Hope by, by John Saunders, who's a former um, ESPN um, sports, um, sportscaster um, who passed away a few years ago. Mm. <clears throat> Right now, I'm in reading in the middle of Stumbling on Happiness um, with the subtitle of Think You Know What Makes You Happy. Hmm. Um, and then I reread The Alchemist. And uh-huh. um, because that's something that made a huge impression on me years ago. And I, you know, I just had some downtime and I wanted to reread it uh, because I think it's really sort of about, you know, this sort of hope and being on a journey and um, trying to find that, that, that thing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and the, you know, I read, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction uh, because a lot of times I just sort of have this idea that, you know, that, that autobiography is theory or theory mm-hmm. is autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, and that oftentimes you get sort of what people are yearning for or what people are seeking um, as being a really important issue for which leaders need to listen. And so I always try to take from, from these kinds of uh, books what it is. And so from historical piece like Soul of America, looking at all of the eras of of, of our country's history and thinking about sort of what were the dominant issues with which leaders were confronted um, and sort of what was happening in terms of the soul of the the country, not just in the politics of the country. Um, And so these books are all things that for me are very, um, very stimulative in terms of in terms of my thinking. Yeah, so much we can learn from understanding people's biographies and and what was going on, the context that they were living in and where those decisions came from as these processes were happening. So very interesting. Uh, Ranesh, what about you? you In the Dan Gilbert book, Stumbling on Happiness, really looks at patterns of thinking and imagination. Mm. And I think that patterns of thinking, leaders understanding their patterns of thinking and particularly engaging their imaginations is a really important part of, of being successful in the role. Absolutely, I think imagination is something we don't talk enough about when we talk about leadership. Right, yeah. Which we'll, we'll get into that later. I think there's some good podcast potential there. So, to, uh, yeah. so Ranesh, what have you been uh, thinking about? Yeah, actually, um, uh, I got really excited, uh, you know, hearing um, Larry's uh, reading, uh, reading list. And this last piece that Larry talked about with Stumbling, uh, Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, I haven't read that book yet, but uh, the theme is ex- exactly actually what I've been um, kind of reading about uh, in terms of um, 
kind of the internal sense of the lead, of the leader and um, sort of uh, whole brain thinking and imagination. So um, I think I've been looking at a lot of work in the neurosciences right now, um, mm-hmm. trying to understand how, how the brain works and how, especially emotions, uh, how we work with emotions. And I know there's so much work on emotional intelligence and leadership, uh, but I've been really thinking about sort of the issue of trauma and emotions. And then, um, you know, how do, how do we create spaces for, to be able to validate, normalize uh, emotions so that it doesn't become a, a, a sticking point, it doesn't become a point of conflict, but actually it can, we can transform that into whole brain thinking. So that's what um, sort of I've been looking at. And there's one particular book, uh, you know, that I'm trying to get through. It's called The Language of Emotions hmm. uh, by Carla McLaren. And um, I mean, what I really appreciate about her take on emotions is that we often put uh, you know, emotions, we often judge emotions as positive or negative, but she says, no, we, we don't need to put a judgment on the emotions. If there's emotions, we just have to, uh, you know, accept that they're emotions. Mm. And uh, then what I think her contribution to this work is what are manifest emotions are not the end. They're not exactly what's going on, but there's, um, the manifest emotions tell us about what's under, under what's going on underneath. So, for example, the way I think about bringing that work into leadership and what I've been doing is, uh, if you think about fear, for example, um, and so I was at a college recently doing work uh, around intergroup dialogue, but also I said let's let's examine how uh, power and domination is manifest in the in the college. And so people wrote many different ways they're affected, but the biggest, I did a word cloud after that, after what people wrote. Um, and what came out, big, the biggest thing was fear. Hmm. That's, what, that's what, these are student affairs professionals, leaders, but they're battling fear. So then we were able to unpack that a little bit more to see what's under that, you know, how does it impact people? How does it affect the work that they're trying to do with their colleagues, with their students? with bringing about change in their own uh, areas of uh, influence. So, um, so this work, I think, on emotions is so important because that's, uh, you know, from the brain sciences, that's where uh, it's in the limbic brain. So uh, uh, how do we, if it's a fear-based response, you know, we have the fight, flight, freeze responses. Um, that's one way of doing it, which is probably going to maintain structures of domination and oppression. Uh, but if we are able to transform those emotions in, towards whole brain thinking, um, then exactly what uh, Larry was saying, exactly John Mark, what you said, it opens up so many different ways of imagining alternatives, imagining new realities. So that's what's gotten me really excited right now. Wow. Um, and uh, if, I may, if I might just add one piece, uh, it also led me, just like Larry uh, was talking about rereading The Alchemist, I actually started rereading um, Bell Hook's book, uh, all about love, which you know she wrote, uh, I think almost 18 years ago. Uh, but I, as I was reading it, I said, "Did she just write this yesterday?" <laughs> because, because, of, because I mean, some of the examples she's using, some of the insights she's p- providing, are so relevant to today's social political context. I said, How, "Was she preaching? You know, was she? Uh, did she have that insight, for foresight, mm-hmm. uh, so many years ago?" 
but she's really talking about the love ethic as, as values of love that we live by, not to possess people, but to bring around greater justice and greater equality. So um, it's just been so, you know, really kind of coming back full circle uh, from the time she wrote it 18 years ago to now and think about, wow, it's so relevant for the work we're doing uh, today. And then um, if you think about the issues of dialogue or uh, dialogue across difference, it is really about creating those spaces that allow people to have care and compassion for each other, have and allow, allow each other to imagine lives that are different from themselves. And then the actions that they take can then be informed by um, those values of care, compassion, respect, love, justice. So that's what I'm, um, you know, that's what I'm having fun with right now. Well, that's, that's great. I love asking brilliant people this question, but it always gets me in trouble because I'm gonna add now at least four books to the pile by my bed that I am <laughs> reading any day now. Um, and so this is, this is great stuff to talk about. Well, and along the lines of great things to read, uh, you all just edited this issue of New Directions on student leadership, uh, which is entitled Centering Dialogue in Leadership Development. So if you'll give us a little bit of an overview of this issue and explain what it means to talk about dialogue as we discuss leadership. I'll just take a really quick take and then I'll, I'll, I'll let Ranish jump in. And so for me, uh, the, I think the thing that was really powerful um, was, the, was the range of voices and the different textures of leadership that people demonstrated based upon the context in which they were practicing leadership um, or the perspective from which they were addressing leadership. And so to have folks um, be able to talk about things from a, a community-based um, situation, mm -hmm. to have people to be able to talk about leadership from a cultural space, particularly from an indigenous space, um, to begin to, to talk about the, the capacity that leadership um, has as it relates to being a, a healing element and being a bridge um, among and across cultures. Um, those were the things that to me really struck me about the, um, the chapters and, and the reading, and that I think what it does, it takes leadership out of this, what I think is sometimes being a narrow, um, single dimension through which we would look at it as sort of, a, this sort of leadership as a, as a hierarchical role, to really looking at it as being something centered in dialogue and centered in community. So those are the things mm -hmm. that I that I took away from this, and that most struck me about the um, the, the reading of the work that was submitted by the authors. Mm -hmm. That's great. Define dialogue for us, if if you would. I mean, I think it's one of those terms that everybody, like leadership, feels like they know, but once you really get down and look into it, what what are we actually talking about here? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a yeah, that's a really great question. Um, Okay, I'll maybe take a first, uh, you know, first try at that. Um, how do we define dialogue? Um, in a very simple way, and maybe I just, uh, um, John Mark, if it's okay, I mean, maybe I'll share a little bit of my personal journey to dialogue because, um, in the in the most simple way, I think I think about it as a, um, both as a 
mode of communication, it's a two-way reciprocal mutual communication that leads to greater understanding. And that communication is not simply about speaking, but also really about deep listening mm. um, with each other. And it's a connected way of knowing. So sometimes, you know, um, we teach people listening skills or something, but it's very um, one, uh, one, uh, one way focus, listening to the other person. Uh, but I think in dialogue is like, we listen, so we may speak differently. Hmm. Does that make sense? So we listen deeply and then how, how we share about ourselves is really deeply connected to what we have heard from other people or how we are affected by what we have heard from other people. So it's um, oftentimes, I think uh, even when we're doing participatory learning or participatory leadership, we're getting um, lots of different input from people. Um, and uh, in fact, one place I was at, I was, you know, this is the exact piece we were talking about. And one person, he's a chief financial officer, he came and talked to me. And he said, you know, I really tried to have lots of people engage in dialogue and, you know, give me input on decision making. Uh, but something is missing. So I said, describe to me, you know, what's how you do it. And as it described, I said, oh, I see. Um, that everybody, as a leader, everybody is speaking to you and then you're getting input from other people. But you're basically in the hub. You're the center and the spokes are coming from you. Mm. What if you imagined a different way of, uh, of conversation, which is actually what, as a leader, what you're doing is actually fostering people to make connections with each other. So as they listen to each other, how, how what they're sharing, how does that also change? So they're building the conversation with each other. Uh, not through you, but with each other. And so you, you can imagine it's, it's a, instead of a, a wheel or a hub and spoke model, it's actually a web that has been woven. So I really think about dialogue in that way is that how we speak to each other, how we listen to each other really changes because of that um, relationship. Um, so that's, you know, that's uh, just kind of a, a broader way of thinking about dialogue. And it takes so many different elements. You know, I've talked a lot about deep listening. Um, we fo I focus a lot on suspending judgment. So we uh, create openness with each other. Even if we're different, how can we be open? Uh, create a curiosity, asking questions of each other. So it's not, okay, okay, I heard you and then I move on. But it really opened up something uh, else. So I can ask you more questions. And then... Um, really listening at the group level as well as a collective level. So you're listening to individuals, but then what are the patterns emerging in this group and how, how do those patterns become uh, entry points into deeper dialogue? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think this is interesting to talk about because a lot of times when we talk about leadership, so much of it is lives in the theoretical realm and, and these conceptual ideas, but, but dialogue is very real and it's immediate uh, and it's practical for folks. So for, for people who are leadership educators who are engaged in this work, how do they put this practical idea of dialogue to work uh, in the things that they are doing with, with students? You know, I think um, Ratnish started off in the beginning and he said something that I think is really important, um, that it's about creating space. Mm. Um, 
and I think that uh, that getting to a place of dialogue requires um, intentionality, mm-hmm. because it, in reality we have com- we have conversation just as a matter of course, but dialogue is different from conversation, um, mm-hmm. because I think what what Rodney suggested in his definition is that when you get into dialogue, you're now talking about value, appreciation, and understanding. Mm-hmm. which don't, doesn't always come out when we have conversations. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so you have to intentionally design for mm-hmm. the outcomes that you want. And so when you, as a faculty member or a teacher or um, a leadership educator, are bringing people together, it's more than just having a learning agenda that's a series of topics, mm-hmm. but it's really about what issues, with what outcome, for how long, you know, what and who owns it. And so it's about trying to get people engaged in a way that allows them to truly connect with each other and to connect in a way that they begin to understand how whatever is a concept or a theory translates to practice. So there's going to be uh, an application, which is why dialogue is so important, because it is, it is something that you have to experience. Uh-huh. And it is a tool that you use as an educator, but that also ends up resulting in being a skill for those mm-hmm. who are participating in the educational experience. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So as a practitioner, you know, that sounds really exciting and thrilling, but it, it also sounds kind of scary, right? I mean, you are <laughs> decentering yourself and giving up a whole exactly. lot of control of how this process is going to go. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, you uh, have no, uh, you have no idea what the you don't, you don't, you, you're not in control of the outcome. Yeah, right. Yeah, which you, which is why you have to be so intentional about the process. Yeah, and you often hear in, in lots of contexts, and particularly in coaching, trust the process. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you trust the process, where you're going to sort of unleash the best of what's inside people mm. um, exactly. through sort of creating that space, then then if it will be something in the end that the more you do it, the more you will trust it. Absolutely. Yeah. That, I mean, this idea of digging in and bringing out the best in people and, and going through kind of that fear to, to this ultimate mm-hmm. exciting process. Uh, what a phenomenal opportunity for folks to engage in on their campuses. One of the central arguments that you all are making in this uh, in this edition is that leadership education has been focused primarily on the individual, on the the student, the leader, on their intrapersonal development. Mm-hmm. By doing this, missed out on looking at ideas of relational and collective attributes behind right. How do we change this in our educational processes? Yeah. Um. So actually, uh, building right, um, right uh, off what Larry was sharing in terms of, um, you know, what are the structures that we create in our education processes? So one of the um, really practical things is that we can talk about dialogue and we can talk about collective leadership, but, uh, but one thing we really need to do is have students have an um, have students have an experiential um, engagement with that. So uh, unless, I think unless students, unless other leaders engage in the actual work of dialogue, maybe 
uh, they might not understand that kind of the relational and collective nature of leadership. Um, so one, and so how do we change this? Uh, one of the things that I've been really having, um, trying to focus on in, in my work now is, uh, you know, trying to think of moments where very much from the beginning, um, have people have some kind of a group experience. Uh, so it's a, it sets, sets a different culture, different ethos, different expectations for our engagement. Um, so John Mark, uh, uh, earlier, um, you know, you remarked on uh, how imagination is really important or that's something we talk about little. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Larry talked about this idea of um, appreciation and affirmation that people uh, live, uh, people's knowledge and wisdom is uh, validated in the in the spaces of dialogue. So one of the things um, I have done in in some places is have people actually do role plays around uh, debate and dialogue or debate, dialogue, and discussion. Um, so just you know, it's fun. Uh, but then they realize, oh my goodness, you know, this is the way we've been operating, and now we see there's a different way of working. So um, that that allows them a shift. Uh, th does that make sense? So, like, uh, with one experience I had, people say, "Yeah, we don't, we know, we don't debate, you know, because we already understand that doesn't really work." Mm -hmm. uh, but most most places I've worked with, they say, "Oh, I think we're engaging in discussion, which is kind of uh, a polite, but a discussion we can think of it as serial monologues, hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> right?" Uh, but then when they actually, you know, when they role play the dialogue. And they see, wow, you know, it really matters how I listen to what, what people have said before me and how I build on that. And then the kind of new questions that are coming up, that doesn't really happen in a discussion because it's kind of disconnected sharing. But in dialogue, it's a very connected sharing. So that's how um, we build that collective culture. So just, I think, having those, that piece in the beginning really helps people. And then... Um, I think the one other piece I've done around relational development is uh, when people introduce themselves. So, I mean, Larry, I just really love that question you are, uh, I think you posed when you first came to Oregon State, like what is, the what is, what is our call? Uh, what is the university calling us to be or to do uh, at this moment? Um, I, I haven't used that question, but uh, maybe it's a similar question, but when people share that, um, I always ask people, please uh, paraphrase or share an appreciation of what the person before you has shared. Hmm. And maybe, you know, I take that as a, I take that for granted, you know, because in dialogue, we have to do a lot of making sure we understand or paraphrase or affirm people. But in so many places, that is not done. People are not appreciated for what they're saying or what they're bringing to the situation. But having, even if it's a half a half a minute saying, wow, this is what I heard you say. Wow, I really appreciated this insight that you shared. It just changes the dynamic and the group. So that, to me, that gets to the more collective and relational possibilities. So those are some, you know, some ways of, um, you know, practical ways of trying to bring that understanding to, to groups and uh, teams that I worked with. Yeah, you know, I think about that from a uh, even a sense of belonging perspective to yes. have somebody sit, you know, sort of affirm what you have brought to a group has got to engender such incredible belonging among the members. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's really great. Yeah.
um, sorry, Jean-Marc, if I might just add, because I think your question, this, this question is, I think, probably the central question uh, in the issue, right, about yeah. um, how do we bring that kind of collective attributes of leadership, relational attributes of leadership. Um, and in some ways, you know, in the social change model of leadership development, uh, you know, there is that intrapersonal development, group development, community development uh, mm-hmm. of values. And I think what's so powerful about this collective leadership part is that it becomes a bridge between the individual and the community. Um, and it becomes, a, it becomes a space for people are able to do that individual development, the intrapersonal development as well, and also imagine themselves as having a greater impact in the community. So that's why it's so exciting to have, um, you know, to be able to uh, really delve deeply into looking how this relational and collective leadership can uh, look like, how does it feel like, how do we create those spaces? And um, uh, yeah, uh, so um, there's just one other one piece connected to that I wanted to share with, especially like how do we do this then is, mm-hmm. um, in these experiences also to, you know, even as we're trying to create a group experience of dialogue, but then uh, what Larry was saying earlier is, you know, we can't control the outcome, but we can control the process. But then participants having this experience, then they can think about applications to their work. And even in thinking about those applications and how they want to uh, take dialogue work into their areas of influence, uh, how do we create collective experiences around that? So I am very intentional about creating small group experiences that are very, bring very diverse people together in those small groups. And then they have to uh, really, you know, hash it out. So it's almost an application of what they've learned about dialogue into thinking about um, uh, collaborative projects, collaborative actions, how are they gonna support each other? How, how are they gonna go tackle conflict together? So, um, so it's both giving people an experience of that collective, um, leadership plus providing spaces they can imagine and uh, make work plans to be able to apply that outside. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I was, I was thinking about is, as I was reading through this issue and, and thinking about dialogue, is this upcoming 2020 election cycle? There's a lot of concern for folks on college campuses about how this is going to affect our students on, on all ends of the political spectrum. It does seem to be a particularly contentious time for us. Uh, so given that your work does center on bringing people together, what advice do you have for folks who are getting ready to navigate this tension with our students? The, well, the first thing I would say, um, and again, I think that you're talking about, you know, faculty, staff, all across the, the academy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The first thing I would say is that leadership is not political, it's relational. Mm. And that part of our challenge um, during uh, contentious times is um, how, do we hold the, how do we hold the community together? Right. Um, but also realizing that the, everybody in the community is not in the same psychological, emotional condition. Absolutely. And that sometimes some of the most important work of leadership is, is involves healing, repairing, and restoring. Mm, right. And that many people in our communities are injured. Yeah. And that leaders need to be ready to, to hear the pain of mm. others, um, while also, you know, in some ways acknowledging their own, but not making their own pain the center of it. 
And I think uh, the challenge sometimes is that the people who are called to do leadership during challenging times are also the people who are living on the margins, Yep. who are feeling most at risk themselves. And so I just think that one of the things we want to do is to keep, their, keep that focus on that role that we need to hear, we need to heal. And again, that's why creating space for people to be able to speak their truths even when there is hurt associated with that truth, or that truth may represent hurt for others, to begin to figure out, and how do we get that person to a better condition so that they can live a socially responsible life within this particular community? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. John Mark, if I might add one, uh, you know, one piece to what Larry is also saying is, yeah. um, I mean, there's, uh, you know, building, building off what Larry is saying, in, in some ways with the 2016 election and even maybe other kind of points of crisis. I mean, you know, we're coming up to the 18th anniversary of September 11th. Mm. Um, and I think that there's been so many different, uh, uh, I think what we've learned, you know, we really have to reflect on what, we, what have we learned from this and then how do we not wait for the next crisis to happen? Uh, so as to um, enact our learning, but how do we start preparing or how do we start setting the culture as quickly as we can now? Um, so there's kind of a, I guess, a safety net, a foundation, a way of engaging with each other that's built in. So if there are flashpoints, if there are hot moments happen, then people have some tools say, oh, yeah, no, th this is what we can, you know, come, this, this is the community we've created. So I think what Larry is saying about um, that le leadership is relational is that people, that we've already built that kind of leadership, that we've already built that kind of ethos um, on campuses so people can say, okay, we have these spaces that we can actually, uh, we think very differently, we, we are impacted very differently about this, but we have a space where we can actually hash that out together. Mm -hmm. So not to wait for the crisis moment, because I think then, um, again, just connected to what I was sharing earlier about fear-based responses, is um, those crisis moments will probably get to more of our fight-or-flight responses. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, if we prepare ourselves now, uh, maybe we can think of those moments then as this transformative possibilities uh, in that moment. So um, that's what, you know, just, uh, I really want to affirm what Larry said. Um, the leadership yeah, is relational. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of healing that needs to happen. Uh, and, it, and what we have learned from the past can really inform how we enter into this new year or two years that we're um, moving into. Yeah, yeah that's, very, uh, that's very encouraging. It is very, very hopeful. And so as we're sort of wrapping up here, I, I want to go back to the poem that you start the issue with uh, the poem from within a light among and it, and it ends with this verse it says our courage our compassion fulfilling our commitments to peace and justice living and leaving our own legacies in this century the century of dialogue and I, was, I was so struck by the phrase the century of dialogue so what what is that for you and, and what hope does that idea provide yeah um John Mark, that, um, that phrase, the century of dialogue, is actually 
partly what had inspired this poem for me. And um, in 2008, the Dalai Lama had come to Seattle um, and there was a whole, you know, community rights event on the seeds of compassion. Um, and in his biggest public address, you know, this was at the, at the football stadium in Seattle. Um, he said, and that's, that's what I remember his line in his ending. He said, this is the century of dialogue. We need to come together. We need to recognize the humanity in each other. We need to work through our differences. We need to work through our pain to see what connects us. Hmm. Um, so that was, you know, for me, I mean, those words resonated so deeply because that is, you know, whether it's the imagination, that's the hope that we have for the world, uh, but that it connected so deeply also with uh, the work I'd been doing on intergroup dialogue. And um, something that Larry said earlier about uh, uh, the possibilities and the necessity, the imperative of healing. Um, the, then the way of thinking about this, this center is the center of dialogue and recognizing each other's humanity is one way of thinking about social healing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the real, that's the vision sort of, um, that I really push for, even for social workers to think about, because my training is in social work and psychology. Um, and I think if social workers, if practitioners of any kind embrace a social healing perspective, how, how different could the world be? And then to hear the Dalai Lama talk about this is the century of dialogue, I said, oh my goodness, there's, there's um, you know, uh, well, not only is there resonance, but um, I feel less alone, you know, in thinking about what the possibilities are. So, um, so that's where, you know, that's where that line came from, the century of dialogue. And, uh, you know, of course, the Dalai Lama has been working so much on um, uh, you know, this kind of spiritual, political, religious um, intersection mm -hmm. around freedom and uh, mindfulness and uh, liberation. So, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's got to be encouraging to hear your, your thoughts sort of echoed and affirmed by the Dalai Lama. That's <laughs> yeah. a good moment, I'm sure. Well, this has been, I, I love kind of the hopeful tone that this conversation is going to to leave us with and so one last question i always like to ask folks when i have them on on the podcast and i'll have you answer this first but what is the next question for you about leadership what are you thinking about next was that for me uh both of you okay um so I'll just start, I've, I've got actually two questions. One is related to the last the response that I gave related to um, the upcoming political season. And I think that we need um, leadership educators have to be healthy. And mm -hmm. so the question that's out there for me is sort of how do we heal the healers? Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. Have this healing responsibility. And again, go even beyond that. And we think about just sort of leaders on our national stage and the people on the international stage who are in these roles, who is very clear when I watch people on TV and hear them, that there is a lot of work that needs to be done inside mm -hmm. some of those folks. Wow. Yeah. And so how do we heal the healers? If they're mm -hmm. to, to heal society or heal groups or communities, they've got to be in better shape. And then the final one is related to the previous question around leadership is um, there was a process started in the 19, early 1990s by the Carnegie um, Foundation around sort of, it's called Scholarship Unbound. 
And it was a notion about how do we unbind scholarship so that we create space for different forms of creativity and different forms of, of intellectual and academic expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really particular to create room for the arts hmm. um, and those in the humanities and other ways that pursue scholarship in, in, in different ways. The question is, how do we unbind leadership? I think we're caught in this, this sort of hierarchical model, focus mm-hmm. on the individual. And do we unbind it in a way to create greater space for different cultural forms and acknowledgments of leadership that, if applied, would make all the difference in the success of our communities? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ranesh, what about for you? What's, what's next? Yeah, you know, I really resonate um, with what Larry shared about healing the healers and the way that um, that idea has, you know, takes form for me in the, in, the, in, the, in the realm of the next questions about leadership is, um, and this is something we put out in the volume in the last chapter, is really looking at the intersection of the self-leadership and social change. Because um, oftentimes, you know, even when we talk about dialogue, especially dialogue across difference or change-making, um, it is about we think about making change outside of ourselves as well, you know, the social change, whether it's organizational change or political change. Um, but they're so influenced by how we are internally as well. So there has to be that internal leadership, I guess what people call self-leadership. How do we connect it to social change? I mean, that intersection is really important for me. And, um, because on the other side, I think one is we only focus on the social change outside of ourselves or we only, only focus on the internal change. Uh, and, and sometimes the internal change gets um, divorced, disconnected, disembodied from what's going on outside. So I really want to bring those two pieces together. Um, and then I think the other piece... Uh, as Larry is talking about unbound, the unbound, unbinding or unbound leadership is, uh, I mean, one of the things I was really struck by all the chapters in the ways we're re- redefining leadership as change making, I think is really important. So I want to really pursue that more. Uh, and what a very particular piece with that is I saw all the people, all the leaders, people were talking about in the volume are in between spaces. <laughs> Hmm. So whether it's campus and community or students and uh, between students and faculty or students and teachers, they're occupying this really incredibly rich but complex in-between spaces of change making. So I'm really excited to learn more about what, what that takes. It's almost a liminal space, you know. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, the, those are some things that are on my mind right now. Wow. Well, thank you all. This has been such a great conversation. So interesting to talk about these ideas of dialogue and leadership and how we collectively come together to, to imagine kind of this future and this world that we want. So uh, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Uh, you can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets. Uh, Facebook or on facebook.com slash SA lead. You can check us out on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC 
or Instagram, we're at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can connect with me on Twitter. I am at John Mark Day. And if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, if you have suggestions for topics we should be talking about or people we should be talking to, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at naspaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Ratnish and Larry, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. Okay. Thank you, John Mark. Yeah.